and welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me, The War Sports. My guest is Michael Tessarian. He is an Irish author, researcher, and public speaker. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining me this afternoon. It's a great pleasure, Chuck. Thanks for the invitation. It's my honor. You're also the host of, co-host of Unslaved, and I appreciate your having me on your show as well. Oh, that um, was a great day, and I've looked for it for almost half of the year. In summer of last year, I finished all of your three books, and uh, I just couldn't wait to get you scheduled in. And actually, I still think of it as one of our best interviews. Well, thank you. And your books are quite interesting as well. And um, you really, I mean, you, you cover a, a broad and vast area of uh, interest, both in terms of um, religion and the uh, forces that influence religion today and pre-Christian religion as well in Europe, what we might call indigenous belief systems and cultures, particularly Celtic and Nordic, but also you talk about politics. And I want to talk a little bit about your background, how it is, it, what, what shaped you, what uh, helped you arrive at the, the fascinating um, position you're in now with, with the kind of knowledge that you have? Well, I came out to America several times in the 80s, but I didn't stay, you know, for a long period of time until after 1989. Then I stayed, you know, till now. I mean, it's been almost 20 years from then on. But the formative years in, in, in Ireland, you know, through the 60s, 70s and 80s, I think that would be one of the biggest answers because I grew up in the troubles. And so you couldn't, even if you, how could you avoid being into politics? You know, it came to your door, it found you out. Right, and right. Also some intriguing stuff behind the scenes, you know, the, the people have looked into that. Uh, and also then having, I say, the second thing would be having this Marxist, rabid Marxist father, who you mm -hmm. only needed to be in his, you know, exposed to that rhetoric, you know, particularly Irish kind of Marxism. But I'm sure it was very similar to Cuban or Angolan or Soviet. So in the end of the day, it all comes out in the wash. But to be exposed to their lies, their hypocrisy, and basically their double standards, you know, for 20 odd years or whatever, I became a conservative by default because you only have to be exposed to that to realize everything they're talking about is wrong. And then finally, when you get into, you know, the Solzhenitsyns and, and then you find out, oh, wait a minute, there's actually a, you know, a counterpoint to all of this rhetoric that they're talking about, about brotherhood of man and freedom for the world. And all the other utopian rhetoric they get into while they're murdering and committing genocide, then you realize, you know, okay, there is a bona fide school of rebuttal to this, you know? And then, so I would say that that background of having a father like that who espoused the most preposterous anti-human nonsense, anti-spiritual nonsense, we might might add, uh, under the name of, of, of uh, utopian, you know, George Soros politics. Yeah, and I find it sounds all good, but it obviously, it obviously didn't sink into me, and I saw the hypocrisy. And so that's made me very, very apprehensive to general liberalism, general, uh, uh, you know, especially the more extreme radical right, you know, left-wing politics. It made me, mm -hmm. I, I was supposed to come sort of, not by choice, but almost by default. And then, you know, it, it, just, it just snowballed from that point on. When I arrived back in America in the 90s, I took a more serious interest. But that was the background for sure. And also growing up in London a lot. I'm born in mm -hmm. Ireland, grew up in Ireland. But spent a lot of time in, in London surrounded by, you know, uh, foreigners like from, you know, the Muslims. And it doesn't mean they're all evil or anything like far from that, you know, but it did give me a big exposure as a young child to all these different ethnic groups. So when I speak about them, I can do some with authority, you know. No, and I, I would say that my background is somewhat similar in that far left wing relatives and friends and culture, very left Jewish secular atmosphere. And I, I considered my my broadcasting and my writing, and you probably feel the same way. It's been a process of debugging myself 
deprogramming myself from a lot of stuff that I had assumed was true, that I was existed within a fishbowl of ideas. And um, that's that's one of the things that I, I like about doing um, media. I like I like interviewing people and and writing books. And that was the original intent of the um, the founding fathers of the United States when they codified the First Amendment in the Constitution. They actually didn't they weren't having an amendment of free speech so people could go tell someone else they could go fuck themselves. You know, they it was there because they wanted people to explore power and ideas and influences on on life and uh, to identify them and then expose them as the best solve toward maintaining sovereignty and freedom because they understood that power is corrupting and that government is a necessary evil. Uh, you can see a lot of tracts amongst the founders that ex that express that. And that's been the American ethos anyways, that, uh, you know, government is a necessary evil, but it's something that we need to preserve and protect our sovereign God-given rights as citizens, and that rights come from God, and that man is a reflection of God, and that we are, as imperfect beings, we exercise a certain limited grant of sovereignty. and. Uh, in that context, the government is put in place by us. It's man-made to preserve and protect that sovereignty. So, Correct. Yeah, and again, the government has not been protecting us. You're, you're right that the original, this was in the minds of the founding fathers who were very much, I don't think they were that political. I think they were quite in their own way spiritual and truly humanitarian. You know, words we use today that have lost their value. I really did think that they understood the the magnificence of the project they were doing. And I think the original experiment was fine. See, I'm of, I'm of the opinion that the original experiment was probably going to go okay with, with pitfalls, but it was going to go okay until the Communist International, what we would refer to today as the Communist International, moved in. And it moved in courtesy of Britain, some secret societies in Britain, but also from Europe as well. Mm -hmm. In one way or another, you know, through the CFR and different federal orgs, it got ensconced. It got ensconced maybe through the federal banks and so on. And so the experiment started to be nibbled away at, you know, gradually. But the word went out. There was many, some of my great mentors within the, within the uh, conspiracy movement, you know, uh, people who, like myself, do believe there's a worldwide conspiracy. They were Christians. They, they kicked this. They, they, you know, they, they had an awareness because they came out of wars, remember. They came out of Vietnam and even the Second World War. And they weren't happy with what they saw when they came home. They weren't happy with the, with the status quo and the way things were going. So, you know, I read their books. I dived into their books. And, you know, anything that I'm writing about now, and it is based on study of the greats, you know, the, of the older generation. And they were, I tell you, they were, uh, for the most part, conservative. In fact, I can't think of a single left-wing member of the whole group, you know, uh, somewhere maybe slightly liberal. But this was a conservative group. And I like what they said. And I like their vision of the world. And when they even spoke about my country, Britain, they were speaking truly. So as a person who was, you know, living and learning in America, I trusted these guys because their account of the British royal family, their account of the Second World War, and their account of other things that happened in British and European history was correct. So then, I, you know, and not every American would know that because they hadn't lived in Europe or Britain. I had, and I knew these men could be trusted because their accounts were absolutely genuine. And so then I, you know, dived into that information. I still do today. And you're quite right. It's as much a healing process of debugging now as it ever was in the past. I'm only conveying to my audience what I'm also, you know, learning as of late and trying to turn it around in real time through you know, the media chances we have now with the internet and, and make that mess, make my study available to other people who maybe don't have you know, the time and the patience to, to read the books. Right, and it's a great contribution. I urge our listeners to also undergo a process, a journey of discovery and uncovering 
um, conventional stuff that we hear in the media, realize that these things often are part of an agenda and that you have to do the necessary due diligence and the work to go beyond, go beneath it and begin the process of thinking for yourself. And that's not always an easy thing to do. Now, one of the things that interested me, Michael, in your research is that you really are tapping into some of the symbolic elements that we see before us as plain as day that express some of the telltale signs of the occult, of, um, you know, of elements of secret societies. You know, you're a musician, you're an artist, as am I, and you bring to it a certain understanding of, um, you know, the abstract culture and looking at things that, that maybe others don't see, but that are being expressed. And uh, I want you to talk a little bit about that and about some of the background and how these symbolic elements are used by, you know, forces that are trying to subvert freedom and trying to impose in an, in an informal way their particular point of view by, by undermining our individual sovereignty. Oh, yeah. It's one of the most important ways of cracking what's going on behind the scenes. Because remember, they closed the doors. We're not members of the club, so to speak. Right. And so although I agree that the symbolism aspect is circumstantial, yeah, but circumstantial evidence is has a huge kick when you bring it to court. So although it's not conclusive of anything, you can you can follow it along and understand some very, very like it gives you a classic keyhole, you know, look. But that keyhole can be very valuable when you're in the complete dark because the establishment elite has put us in the dark. And so people like us, I mean, look, even just come back a couple of hundred years ago, the whole human race was illiterate. So we're coming, we're coming, you know, reading and studying and being able to look behind the scenes is a very recent phenomenon. But I do believe, and it's worked for me, that one of the ways to do it is to study symbolism. For one reason, they use symbols amongst themselves. Whatever secret societies or cabals we're talking about, take the Shriners, you know, they're the ones I think are somewhat, and again, it's a speculation, but I think they're involved with the, the Islam, the radical Islam. But take a group like that, or even another kind of Masonic, uh, a quasi-Masonic group, especially the Templars. These people use symbols amongst themselves. So then you have to say, well, wait a minute, if those symbols are being used amongst themselves and they think they're that important, then maybe we should find out about it. And then there's another dimension is that they use it on us. And I mean that in the sense of a kind of a sorcery, on us, like a hex. Uh, partly to communicate to us so that we sign on the dotted line in a kind of a right brain way. You know, there's the left brain, the right way, and right brain, and symbols work with the right brain. So part of the complicity that they have over us, part of the mind control, is by using symbolic language to get us to sort of uh, go along with the agenda where, you know, if we were fully conscious and rational of it, we probably wouldn't. So there's two levels to symbolism. One is that they love it themselves and use it themselves constantly uh, for whatever in-house purpose they do. This is like soccer, you know, decals or whatever. I mean, symbols are all around us. We know, we know a difference between a Target, you know, and, and a McDonald's because of the symbols. Sure. So, and <laughs> same with political parties. It's just something that comes out of the ancient world. But then I find this other more sinister dimension, which is that they start using symbols in a kind of a mantic, auto-hypnotic way. You know, this has been accepted by many, many, many great people. And I started to get into it more from the occult side because knowing mm -hmm. that symbols are being used on a subliminal is brought up by many people. Douglas Rushkoff, uh, you know, we've had uh, Brown Wilson Key and King, uh, Gene Kilborn. So this is accepted officially, but the occult side has not. So when all of this mm -hmm. demonic symbolism is being used in, you know, all the alcohol videos and even many of the children, I mean, all of it, 
All of my, all that spews out of Madison Avenue is deeply evil, deeply satanic in my eyes. So you have to ask yourself a question: What on earth is all about? What? Why would they even want to do this? How does this help sell a product? You know. Uh, but then, then, then that opens more doors, and you start to realize there's something even more pernicious than just selling a product. And once you've grasped that point, oh, my, selling a product would be bad enough with all of this horror. But mm. when you realize it's about entrainment on a spiritual level to bring people's spirit into the dirt, into the mud, into the sludge, you know, of, of lower forces and lower energy to, to, to uh, sort of intrude into our direct natural connection with spirit. Then you've really got to you've really got to expose that pestilence. Oh yeah, I mean this is really interesting. Um, it's um, I, I want to talk about the, you know you you mentioned the use of language and its code nature. Um, and this is something I studied a little bit in my book on the subversion of Judaism and how that was done by the Shabtai Zvi and the Frankist movement. I'll get into that in a minute, but um, <clears throat> in the modern parlance. There is amongst the elites of the world, and certainly in the United States, we see this. It's almost like they communicate in a code language. Uh, there, there's double, triple, quadruple meanings to words. And uh, it's a form of speak that was described by French scholar Elaine Beniscon as totalitarian language, the language of power, where the speaker, the user of that language, who may not even be conscious of it. It's something that's internalized at an earlier point, usually in college, or they learn this. It's, it's part of the culturation. But others are conscious. It's a, it's, a, it's a language of indirection and of sophistry. It's a language of the use of words that have double meanings and, and indirect innuendo. Nothing is actually said. I think that a classic example of this right now would be former President Barack Obama. He would get up, he looked great, he spoke well, it, everything seemed brilliant. You walked away from it saying, wow, that was brilliant. But he didn't actually say anything that you could really hang your hat on. It was all this kind of like gobbledygook. It was like double talk. And it was, it was vagaries that it was almost as if he was really speaking to two audiences. You know, the, for public consumption, the, you and I, the bubbers out here, are supposed to hear this and look to him and, as a great leader and as a, a great arbiter, you know, someone who's, you know, guiding our path and who's, who's, who's altruistic. But there's, double, there's another language that's being used, a code language that goes out to people who are much more witting and much more conscious of what's going on. And I also think that one of the reasons that the establishment right now despises Donald Trump is because he doesn't do it. He doesn't do this kind of language. Now, he may be at times crude and he may be cruel, but he speaks plainly. He is honest. He speaks what he believes is true. And, you know, the, the rage against him for that, because he's exposing this nature of this false kind of paradigm is extremely intense. I mean, I just saw over the newspaper just before I, I started this interview that you've got the, you know, the establishment media now, people at CBS, people like David Muir and these big announcers who come on with all the blue lights flashing behind them and all the hypnotic, you know, use of, of media that they're blaming Trump for the, the this murderer in Florida because of his culture, you know, because of the, 
you know, when in fact, I mean, I've also seen some other stuff that comes to me that the, the guy was was a, one of them. I mean, he, he was connected to the anti for Black Lives Matter movement. He was an Islamist, all that stuff, which I, I don't know what the truth is. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. But but I'm only bringing it up to point out that their hatred for Trump and their hatred for this challenge to their establishment tease, their, 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 this cocoon they've created is so intense that they're willing to blame him for everything. Well, they're lauding Castro and lauding Che Guevara and new biographies and new PR and all oh, yeah. high-priced uh, documentaries and movies are being made. You know, it's just absolutely not ridiculous. Oh, yeah, I, I actually wrote uh, in from right from the beginning that Obama was a kind of a pseudo-Akhenatam, and he the solar symbolism surrounded him can be right mm-hmm. out of the 18th dynasty. You're quite right. There's been an active attempt to symbolize him as some sort of a messianic figure and you know a lot of symbolism we could talk all day about the symbolism in that regard but it definitely harkens back to Akhenaten where his idiot wife was portrayed as some sort of Nefertiti I mean it's the thing is ridiculous of course but Mm -hmm. gee I don't know this is the way they work this is Madison Avenue and nobody gets to be president without you know in some sense uh succumbing to this uh this thing and it works I mean we we're sitting here he became president it actually works and so it is wonderful to see a more refreshing, normal person. You know, I'm Irish, so Donald Trump doesn't rub me up the wrong way. I love his brazenness. I me love too. his me manner. Too. And I love the way he can stand up and speak. And I think he, that's very needed right now because one of the issues that we need as a solution is the courage and the guts to just stand up, look people in the eye and speak like we used to do in the streets of New York. I don't know what happened. You know, I'm a foreigner in America and I grew up on film noir films. And I used to love the fact that people stood up, looked you in the eye and said exactly what they needed to say. And now I get get over to America and it's nothing but PC. I just can't even understand the flip, you know, the 180 degree turn. And it's, it's diabolical to me. And then I want to look into why that happened. That does, doesn't happen overnight. There must be reasons behind it, you know. And I think your work is seminal. I mean, I read hundreds of books a year, hundreds and hundreds. And I'm very rarely blown away. Your work, like you said earlier, about work that penetrates beneath the surface, maybe goes a little bit, you know, into darker areas and connects some dots that other people are either too scared to, to link or just don't think are linked. You, you're one of the people who's linked some so important dots. I consider your work with some of the you know most important stuff of, of this millennium, actually. And that's why I'll do my best to get it out. Really yeah, the checks in the mail, Michael. Thank you. <laughs> <It's okay>. um, <laughs> the um, I'm almost like interrupting my train of thought here. Um, you mentioned the uh, political correctness. That's just Marxist tyranny. That's an informal. You know, the, the, that's a totalitarianism. If there's one thing Trump's accomplished, is he's challenged that. That's a, a, an attempt to control every aspect of, of who we are. I mean, they want to control like the Nazis did. They want to create a nanny state, a socialist state that controls as many aspects of the life of the citizen yeah. as possible. But this goes further. This is even worse in a way because they're controlling not just our thoughts, but what we may think in the future it projects. And they're putting us under a microscope. There was a professor at Harvard named Charles Pierce in the 1980s, who actually developed this whole idea of microaggression, really radical Marxist guy. Um, and, and the idea is that basically there's ra- they're looking for a racist gene. You know, they'll, they'll put you under a microscope. It, it, it literally means microaggression to find something. And they only do it to people who don't genuflect to the left or who don't aren't politically correct at any given time. And that can at times mean liberal. So if you're liberal out there, you could be in the same crosshairs. If you do something that is a little bit off the reservation, all of a sudden the microscope comes out, the scientific jargon comes out, 
And science has been completely politicized, I'm sure, as you know. It's utterly a part of this kind of pseudo-language. And, and you are destroyed. I mean, they can destroy a person's career. They can destroy their life by just simply pulling a little something, a little chestnut. They might have said, like, in 1963, they were in a conference, and they, they looked this way instead of that way. And all of a sudden, you know, they, they ring it up the flagpole, and, you, and you're, you're finished. They're saying, don't listen to this person because he's got something against black people, which is the main thing in the United States. That's our weakness here. Every nation, it's a little different. They, they examine the culture and they, they find the Achilles heel and they attack on that. Um, and, and, of course, it's, it's the big lie, as Lenin originally said, and that Hitler echoed, you know, the use of the, you know, of, of a falsehood and, and then the, the magnifying of that to the point where, by using their minions in in the means of communication, you can barely overcome it. But I want to talk a little bit about the history of this in modern times. You've written about, and we've talked about, the influence of the Bavarian Illuminati, which was established on May 1st, 1776, um, and how that began to corrupt and subvert European nation states and Christianity. Uh, in Judaism, I wrote about this in my history of the war against Judaism. It started with this false messiah who it was in 1666, who was by, by the name of Shabtai Zvi. And he had a huge following. We would call him a rock star today. I mean, he was like traveling around with his entourage. And it was like there was a lot of orgies and all that stuff going on. And, and he, um, he was talking as the messiah. You know, this was the next coming. And the way he proved his messiahship was he desecrated the Torah at the Bema and subverted the laws of, of the Torah. That was why, because he was the messiah, he could do this. And he had a lot of following in Europe, including among a lot of legitimate, well-meaning people who believed him, until he finally made his way to Constantinople and the sultan brought him into his presence and said, look, you have two choices. Either you renounce your messiahship and I'll let you be a, a you know, doorman or, or you declare your messiahship, in which case you're gonna, I'm going to kill you right now. So he renounced his messiahship, needless to say. And, um, you know, a lot of legitimate people then realized that the guy was a phony and they dropped out. But there was a lingering secret society that developed that continued to espouse his doctrines of subversion and of, you know, overthrow. And even in, in Turkey and in the Islamic world, it's or particularly in Turkey, they call it the Donbe sect. But in Europe, it was called the Sabadians. And they gave birth in the 1700s to one of their main proponents, this guy, Jacob Frank, who continued this, this, this process, I mean, of, of, of subverting Jewish values and subverting the Jewish faith and, and moving toward a secular faith and moving toward like a world religion. He would change his religion. He would become Catholic, and then he'd go back to Judaism. He'd become Protestant. I mean, Shantay Zvi became Islamic. Then he went back. And, and with the idea being that we're all one, you know, this kind of, it was a pre-communist thing, that, that they would, you know, create a one-world religion and that there was no such thing as objective moral values. Everything was whatever you wanted it to be. If you thought it was good, it was good. And um, this has really destroyed a large portion of Judaism. It really infiltrated it. And I, I see it in, 
in many of my Jewish co-religionists today, and I don't think they're conscious of it, but they don't believe in, in the creator. They don't believe that the Torah is a immutable source of moral and ethical precepts, which the founding fathers of America believe. They don't believe in Christians. They don't believe in the divinity of Jesus anymore, you know, who carried forth the, the precepts of the Torah for the world. And instead, they've replaced it with this kind of, uh, I don't know what to call it, other than just this relativistic, amoral uh, belief that man is, is supreme. And when you talk about the symbols of, of ancient times being used by these societies today to promote their beliefs, and you talk about Barack Obama as the great glorious leader, this is exactly what the Lord God warned us about in the Torah when he talked about idol worship. This is not new. You know, we think that that's over, but it's not over. It's here more than ever. The idea of the idol was that it was a false image, a false God, if you will, that was propped up by people behind it, imperfect people who were pushing their agenda and who were putting the words into the mouth of the false God. I mean, that's what you have with a guy like Obama or any of these other people. They're kind of front men. They're, they're, they're idols that are put forth. I mean, here's an example of someone who was absolutely a nobody until all of a sudden he emerges like a phoenix out of nowhere and he's thrust into the president. Uh, you know, and he was a tabula rasa. There was a blank slate there, which is usually the type they look for. And I think that describes what we're dealing with here. There's no sense of objective values. There's no sense that there's a divine source for truths and for morality. Everything is man-made for them. And thus they work toward the utopia. Yeah, yeah. And he's a mason. And he did appear out of nowhere. And uh, the bizarre thing is that they're, they they seem to profess atheism on one level, but then they're masons with another. So you, you're right. They change hats for different occasions. But the synagogue of Satan, you know, should be known to all Jews. I mean, Mm -hmm. be right in there that they understand that the Sanhedrin crucified Jesus that they were in collusion with the Romans some of them so this should not be new it's only new to people who haven't studied their own history that's uh, right these Sabbateans and people like that have corrupted Judaism they got a few of the families on their side not everyone they had many right. exposers as well but they were able to seduce some of the wealthiest families within Judaism the Templars were able to seduce some of the richest families within Christianity to their side you know and these the dynastic rivalries and allegiances, they do happen. And, and I believe that some of these Zapatans you're talking about, these Frankists, they're still around. I, I, oh, yeah. I, we got Shriners. We've got some very crazy cults and sects that don't mean well. And then you start looking at the number of, you know, not just presidents, but people at the head of the World Bank and, you know, and some of these federal orgs and some of these like sort of George Soros networks. Uh, you'll find that they're all going back to this uh, hidden hand, you know, of the, of the Masonic Secret Society. So it doesn't indict normal Masons who are doing well and are charitable. I'm talking about some very high level people. And, and the information shows us that there is indeed a, a worldwide network of these people. And they're very adept, as you just said, of pretending that they're Christian. You know, they put on a face, put on a hat for every occasion because they're ecumenical. And then they want to come together and spread this allegiance that all you divided parties, all your stupid little petty allegiances and beliefs, we need to bring that all together. Can't you see that we need to be one big global sludge culture and sludge religion? And we go for it because the media, through their Benetton advertisements and the Google you know, 
the ta- like you said, the talismanic terms that they're constantly using to seduce mm-hmm. people. And they've been doing it drip feed, drip feed, drip feed since the 50s and 60s. And no matter how many insiders, you know, uh, come from the inside to warn the human race, for some reason the penny just doesn't drop, you know? And all you got to do is just try to carry on as best you can. Well, well, I think that they've done it in every generation since Adam and Eve. I mean, this is the darker side of human nature. It's the corruption of power. It's the hubris of of human human uh, tendencies that that believe that they can replace God in heaven with themselves. I mean, this is the warning in the Garden of Eden that Eve was told by the serpent or Satan, "You can be as God. You can know good and evil. You can know everything. The tree of knowledge." In other words, you can overthrow God in heaven and replace him with, with man. And that was the temptation then. It's the temptation now. And it, it's all about power. And most of the people involved in it are unwitting. They're unconscious. They just are sort of, you know, I guess you might say they want to be one of the beautiful people. You know, these are super powerful people who tend to dictate the culture and the cultural trends. And it's very easy to get swept up in it. It's very easy to conform to it. I think that a lot of people um, subjugate their own ideas, their own consciousness, their own beliefs at not an early age. I would say probably maybe high school and then college, definitely, in that they realize that in order to achieve what they want in the world to get ahead, I mean, it, it really comes down to professional advancement. It comes down to personal advancement. You want to get the, the women, you want to get a good girlfriend, all of that. You have to kowtow to this 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 dominant secular left-leaning uh, establishment and 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 they thus block out of their minds ideas that might be in opposition to it or they might you know have a mild uh, genuflection toward those ideals maybe but they become enslaved I mean you I'm looking at your hat enslaved that's right I mean, your mind becomes, you know, you, you, you give up a piece of your own mind and your own soul to these ideas. And thus, you know, you, you're, you're sort of in a semi-comatose state, really, I suppose. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little. But I entirely agree with you, Michael, when you say that there are secret forces uh, at foot. I think that there are. I think that they, they have secret societies in politics, in culture, and in religion. All three. I think that they are well financed by private merchant banking houses that are all over the world. Um, you know, some people say that when you bring that up, you're being an anti-Semite. And some of the big names in that world are Jewish, at least by name. But I think that actually the the, the banking establishment uses that as a deflection. They're yeah. saying you know, to criticize us means you got something against Jews. It doesn't matter if they're Jewish. I mean, it's not a yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter whether they observe the Sabbath on a Saturday or a Sunday. You know, that's that's not relevant. The point is that they are part of an elite group that really puts earthly power over all. They they've manipulated wars. They've manipulated currencies. They've manipulated depressions and, and inflations. They have informally controlled your property, your income by putting a mortgage against your future. Um, they manipulate you through the culture, through the media, through uh, cultural institutions, through academia, all of it. And you know, it's nothing to do. It's the furthest thing from from either Judaism or Christianity. It's it's actually even not even Islamic. It's 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 this radical 
you know, amorphous institution. Now, do I think that they all talk to each other in a smoke-filled room? I don't think so. Probably not. I think they think alike. They don't need to do that. It's just a trend that it's kind of an in, unspoken fraternity, I guess you might say. What say you? They have their manifestos as well. They don't need to talk one to the other because, you know, the catechism of the revolutionary or they have their little uh, sort of Masonic uh, backstories. And it, it's an ideology. It's a demagoguery. And as you say, it's based in some of the lower aspects of human nature. So this is a, this is partly remote control, you know, where, where you just cater to some of the lower in, uh, appetites, you know, and, and the need for people like people like my father who want to stamp their feet, you know, to order people around to to but to do it in the name of the people, you know, and, oh, yeah. and basically it's vanity. It's ego. It's massive, massive egotism of an intellectual type of some sort of members of the club. You know, like all masonry is based in promise. Any hierarchy that's malignant is based in what you're going to get when you go up to the next tier and become one of us. And then the same rule applies all the way up. But that's in a college. That's in a university. That's in most corporations, the same rotten you know, meritocracy. But it's not a healthy meritocracy. It's like you said earlier on. It's about, you, you know, you'll never be lonely as long as you side with our ideology. Then, then it's all going to work for you. Then you're going to be right. carried through the streets. How dare you ostracize yourself from this just because of some logic that you have, you know, some rationality. We're going to penalize you in every possible way. You know, and unfortunately, it's getting, you are right, it is getting worse. They're able to penalize you now, you know, right from the courts. They get the psychiatric, you know, my great hero, Wilhelm Reich, was locked up and basically mm -hmm. died in a federal stockade only for healing people. Well, there you are. And then this goes on That's and on. That's right. Ezra Pound was another one. He was kept at St. Elizabeth's Hospital for the last 30 years of his life. Exactly, uh, exactly. You know, all he was trying to do was expose a few bankers and, and the duplicity of, of FDR, you know. But see, there is a certain amount of not only parchment idolatry, but there's also this heroic thing. We talked about Obama's the most classic, obvious example. But it's also, they use that. They use that as well uh, because we love heroes. Heroes are, are great. But then they can put the pseudo hero in front of you as well. And unfortunately, a lot of people want to follow that and vote for that. You know, they don't have to open their mouths and, and promise a couple of things like FDR's New Deal or you know, Woodrow Wilson's United Nations or whatever it is. And people fall for it. And they've, they've wheeled out the same strategy again and again and again. And what they want to do is nucleate these nationalistic and racial differences, which are healthy and organic and natural. And there's no evil in them at all. Uh, and, but they want to make it look like it is. These Frankfurt School people have sat around and planned it out. They're very, very, very clever about the way they approach it. And they want to have duplicitous, money-grubbing, evil men, you know, uh, getting up. To, that's what a, a malignant hierarchy is. It filters out good people. That's what its mm -hmm. job is, so that only the scum reaches the top, and then we wonder why our world is around in these, in these evil people. It's because there's an actual, you know, meritocracy, a, a completely organized strategy to make sure that if you've got morals, and you know you're introspective and contemplative and spiritual. That's it. You won't even get past the university grade. They're already going to please you out because they're going to read those papers you're writing. And if you don't conform to that Fabian garbage, you know you're going to be marked down and some other you know straw person, but who can who can be on strings, a puppet on the strings, somebody they can order around and they know. And then of course that's why we know there's this whole thing about pedophilia. Yeah, because they 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 want people who have these peccadillos, so that it's the classic ops, black ops, where they film you or they have you on tape, you know, and then black you're in their mouth forever. That's right. I mean, I think there's a little touch of blackmail behind anyone who rises to such a high level and, you know, they know that they that something can come back and, and take them down if they 
if they get to, if they get too independent. Either that, or they could be knocked off. Um, I want to talk about because you and I agree on the the nature of the of the secret establishment. Listeners to this program, viewers may not. So, whether you agree or not, the fact is that there are certain telltale signs philosophically. You talk very well about the actual symbolic signs that you can detect in everyday life through advertising, through the media, through movies. And it's a really fascinating subject. We should do a whole show on that. But I want to talk about some of the ideas and the memes, if you will, that are, that are telltale signs of this. You made reference to your Marxist father, and I, I think of my own Marxist relatives and friends that I've known over the years. And there are certain mannerisms that are telltale signs of ideologies that are not healthy and that are not good for individual rights and and the genuine growth of prosperity and all the things that we conventionally admire. And uh, and one of them is one that you just alluded to. And, and, and it comes from the Freudian concept of projection. In other words, what is they what they are, they will project onto their opponents and try to say, and I think that many of them even do this unwittingly. And the projection that I want to bring up here is the idea of their this incredible righteousness, this holier-than-thou attitude that permeates everything that they do and say. You can even see it on their faces and on their visible. I mean, I know, a good example, we get to mention hundreds of examples. I think of Hillary Clinton for some reason. This smirk, this this kind of like ironed into her features that of, of looking out at the rest of us. These people wake up in the morning and it's like they think they're on the top of Mount Sinai coming down to deliver the truth to everybody. The, the, the great gift of, you know, of nature, you know, it gets into this this incredible self-righteousness. Now, they like to say that Christians are like that, but they're not. You know, true believing Christians are people who question. You know, Judaism is based on the idea of questioning, not not having these hard bound, you know, ideas. You know, it, it's a process of, of developing knowledge and it's a humbling process. It's not this kind of incredible blinding arrogance that that they display this absolute certainty um, when they speak. It's a style of viewing things that I think that most of us who are honest will notice that. Now, whether or not they're part of an Illuminati, okay, I get it. Most people don't want to think about that. Maybe they're not. But the fact is we can see things that are visible to us in memes and in attitudes that they express. And they are not healthy. You know, they're not good for them, but they're not certainly good for us and good for freedom. Would you talk a little bit on some of these characteristics that you've noticed? Well, it's a form of psychopathy, remember? Uh, the insider smile. The self-righteousness, it made me squirm. It's one of the things, because remember, I didn't have the intellectual ability when I grew up, you know, listening to him every Saturday night with his pals, sitting around drinking themselves to death and talking about the rights of man while they go home and beat their wives and all the rest of it. So uh, it was squirm. It was just a repulsion, right, that I had that just said, there's, there's something seriously wrong with this, and I'm going to work out what it is. But you nailed it when you talked about the intellectual arrogance, because the most towering thing that I saw in him and all of his chums, uh, these are little men. Uh, they're not giants like Ezra Pound and, and Solzhenitsyn and all. They're little men, and yet that uh, you know when the it's just it's just the demagoguery is basically the way to look at it. And you give you give a little man some power, 
You know, instead of one stripe, he's got three. Shit, he'll he'll murder and he'll kill your enemies for you, and he'll wave your flag and he'll have that little red book and he'll profess Maoism. You know, to, to the he, he, half of his own brain doesn't even understand what it's all about. So the way that I work is to get, to become more knowledgeable about their own subject than they are, and this involves the symbolism because some of the people who use the symbolism, or let's say some of the people who are susceptible to it, aren't aware that they are. So when you point out on a dollar bill or at a Masonic temple in Washington D.C. or the you know the, the great uh, uh, the great Senate halls or you know mm -hmm. these other capital buildings or whatever, when you show people this isn't just decorative, this is a language, then they have to believe the evidence of their own eyes. And believe me, that works way better than sitting down and browbeating them with a bunch of stuff from the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. You know that they, they checked out of that when they left school. They said never again do I want to know anything. So you've got to have a different tack. So I turn to the TV shows. I turn to the documentaries and the media, not just what's on the content, but the way the content comes across. The medium is the message, right? And the way light is being used. Illuminati, you want you want to prove the Illuminati? It's easy. But back it doesn't the, come Look at the back of the dollar bill. Think it's done. It's not done encyclopedically. It's done right. symbolically. I mean, I, I, I did a program with somebody. I forget who it was, but he uh, we took out a dollar bill and we looked at the back and we looked at the seal, which was put on there in the 1930s, by the way, by Vice President Wallace. Henry Wallace was a avowed Marxist and who was an occultist who believed in this. He had like a guru, the Warwick, I think it was. Yeah. And uh, that was the first time the American people actually saw that seal. And he went over with me all the different things on the dollar bill. And if you look at both the front and the back, and it was just an eye opener. It's unbelievable. The amount of occult symbolism on that, on that parchment that, you know, there were people involved that really were about this world order business. Now, I don't think that most of the founding fathers were. I think George Washington, there's a very famous letter uh, from him to one of his constituents who was warning him about the infiltration by the Illuminati of his lodge in Alexandria, Virginia. And he said, yeah, I know this. I, I, I know it as a fact. And it's diabolical. So, I mean, you've always had in America people, I mean, maybe that's one of the things that have made us different. We've never, they've never taken over here. We've always had people who are witting enough, who are aware enough that they've exposed and they've, they've opposed this, this agenda. Right now we have Trump. You know, it's, it's never something that, that has gained the absolute upper hand in the United States. And probably, look, I tend to be optimistic about this anyways, in that I don't believe that they, they do win as much as maybe we think they do. Because what they're about, this idea of this amorphous world order controlled by an elite group of men, it's not natural. It's not normal. It's not in the interests of average people. It's not true. And so because of that, they lose you know, enough that they never really obtain their power. Now, in the process of they're trying to get power, they may do some really ugly things like holocausts and depressions and world wars and other unspeakable atrocities. But ultimately, and in each generation, they do not win and they are not winning. They, and we, we just need to put them further on their heels by exposing them. You know, it's that simple. It's our responsibility as citizens and as people, you know, who are involved in, 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 in public declamation, if you will, to expose them. Because the more we can do it, the further we can put them back. But they'll never go away. But we can continue to fight the good fight. Yeah. 
Uh, we did a podcast last year called The Dying Conspiracy. It's something I did before, but then we really did a, a much more thorough job on it where we analyze not just the generational change that some of the old guard have died off. I mean, that's just a simple fact, isn't it? They were, they were kind of old when they started the conspiracy. And so it's more, yeah. more their descendants who are basically incompetent. So it backs up what you're saying. It doesn't mean that it's completely gone, but it's more the conspiracy now is more thrashing around. The, the dinosaurs collapsed, but it's in its dying sort of phases. It doesn't mean that it still has not got any life in it. It certainly doesn't. We need to be careful. But it's not the same entity as it was when you're the back crazy Lord Kitcheners and, and that type. You know, the gung-ho ideologue is different today than the opportunist son of coke-snorting, godless, you know, hell-bound creature, you know, that is trying to steer the, the, the great juggernaut today. He's making a mess of it. He's going all over the shop. But, you know, one thing I forgot to mention when I talked about the types you're speaking of, the ones who either buy into the ideology or, or purvey it through the streets, is that uh, once you don't have a spiritual heroic vision, you must put a Mao, you must put an Obama, you must put a Pol Pot in that place. So there is something about the psyche that if you don't have something higher than yourself, if you do not believe, you see, in a greater purpose, in the end, you start idealizing man, and you and, and it's just potluck. You're going to pick some demagogue, and you're going to start worshiping at his feet. And this is this is the projection you're talking about, you know, to the leader, to the Alpha mm -hmm. Father. Please help me. I'm hopeless. You know, uh, uh, you know this uh, dependency and all of the infantile stuff comes to bear, but it doesn't come to bear in the person who's put their faith, you see, and put their their eyes are on on a much higher sort of spiritual uh, quest. That's a whole different relationship. And it doesn't deal with master-slave relationships, you know. But when you don't have that, then the master-slave automatically of itself becomes the dynamic in human affairs. And I think what you're describing gets to why the establishment is so rapidly anti-faith. They do not want to have us believe in a God that is a creator of the universe and that is a lawgiver. And when you take away that God, I mean, G.K. Chesterton wrote about this very eloquently. He said that when without God, you have nothing and therefore you believe in everything. <laughs> and once you remove the belief in an immutable source of, of um, morality that exists outside of human manipulation, then you can believe in anything. And that's where you end up with the idol worship, with the great figures. That's why we have school shootings right now. I know people don't want to talk about this, but the reason this is, has proliferated is because they took God out of the schools. I'm convinced of that. You know, I'm not saying there are, I'm not trying to be simplistic here. There's a lot going on. But when you take God out of the schools, you take any mention of a belief in God as something that is seen as anathema and as unfashionable and inappropriate and you can't do it and you make fun of and denounce people who do in the most ugly way, then you're going to have people who tend to be all over the place. They don't have any moorings. That's when you end up with an idol, a Marxist leader like Hitler or Stalin, you know, who fill that need because we do want to believe. It's natural for, for human beings to believe in, in something, you know, and if it's not going to be God, then who is it going to be? I would even say this to atheists. You know, the idea of a, of a creator outside of human manipulation is what's made societies free because you don't have to answer to the leader. You answer to a higher authority. Jesus is what, this is what he said to Pontius Pilate when he was asked, who do you, know, who are you king of? He says, I answer to 
of an authority outside of you, a higher authority, and he was he was crucified within an hour of having said that. It was one of the first times that a human being, whether you believe Jesus was divine or not, is let's put that aside. But he stood up to the most powerful secular force in the world, the Roman Empire, as one man saying, no, I don't answer to you. I answer to a higher authority. And that's what they hate. And that's what they despise. That's why they hate Christianity. That's why they hate faith in, 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 in an immutable set of principles that they can't control and that they can't manipulate. You, I think people can even prove what you said. Was there any school shootings before the 1970s, before no. all of this liberalism came in? No, there wasn't, and and really, and uh, pray, prayer in school was banned in 1963. So it, that was the beginning of it. Yeah. Um, that there was no more reference to God. There was no more reference to prayer. You know, that's an interesting subject. I actually did a show on a, a book by an author who pointed out that this it, it was it was brought by this atheist, Madeline Murray O'Hare. Her son now does interviews. He's he's become Christian, but. But it was also very unconstitutional in that it was right the rights of the states to dictate things like prayer in school, not the federal government. So it was it played several roles for the establishment. It was a usurpation of power into the hands of a federal unelected bureau, namely the Supreme Court. And it also removed one of their biggest enemies, and that is believe in God from from children. So we have children now who are. They, they, they don't have any strong core sense of belief. And those children are now adults and their children are the ones who are doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a long tenderizing campaign. The media is hugely involved in it. Uh, that's why people <laughs> have to open the symbolic literacy. That's, you know, as I said, it does dominate my work. And we start simply by just observing television, normal stuff that people are familiar with, and then slowly take it into more of an occult area. Um, you know, my, on my female Illuminati site, I got two articles mm. there that go into heavily duty, the Masonic symbolism and how some of it hybridizes. See, it, it is Masonic, but they, they have a beautiful, you know, they put Madison Avenue guys on it and then they soften it and it turns up on products. It turns up more in the ubiquitous media, but uh, you can easily see that these suns and these pyramids and these other pentagrams and some of these other symbols, you know, and it's important to know about them. A lot of people see symbols every day. They don't think are, are actually Masonic or secret society symbolism. So I make sure that I try to put as many of the symbols there, you know, then they understand what they are. And even some religious symbolism is misused because remember, all of this evil is the misrepresentation of that which is sacred. So evil creates nothing of its own. It can't. Evil yeah. is uncreated. It can only band out of shape that which has been created by spiritual people and spiritual forces. It takes it and it, 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 it you know, it, uh, it sort of uh, misconstrues it. So a great deal of what we're looking at only has a lure for us. We, our hands only move towards it because the spirit sees something spiritual in it and that's the trap. So in order to break that, you know, entrainment, in order to break it, to not be fooled by what they're doing, you have to really get into the symbolism aspect because then you can take back those, you know, you can understand the origin of these symbols and you understand that they were basically spiritual in nature, and then they can't be used in this uh, debauched way, you know, to pull your energy down, to uh, over-sexualize the children, and, and to just basically entrain the mind. You know, I mean, it's just a situation of uh, master and slave. But master and slave has no place in love. Love does not have slaves below or masters above. Love is freedom. And unfortunately, you know, these simple precepts have been lost, you know, in our modern world.
Well, they don't believe in love. They believe in unwinged errors. And uh, you have, you know, as you say, like the, uh, the, the destroyer, destruction of the innocence of children in a moral society, we protect the innocence of our children. You know, yeah. we make sure that they reach an age of maturity where they can understand these things. You know, it's uh, that's gone out the window. And I think that your work on um, on symbolism is really, really fascinating and um, something that um, I'm, I'm glad that you're writing books on it. It's an extraordinary subject, one that deserves a lot of amplification. I mean, we should all be kind of aware of this and aware of what we're looking at in the course of a day. Um, you know, just walking around in our cities and looking at advertising and logos and all the rest. Now, Michael, you've done some work recently on what you've referred to as uh, a corruption of the Vatican and, uh, and the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I'm not Catholic, but I've always looked to the Catholic Church, like a lot of people do who are more conservative, as, as is somewhat of a, a beacon of, of morality. They have a standard. I want them to be who they are. I want the Catholics to be Catholic. I don't like this particular Pope because I don't think he's as Catholic as I, w- I want the Pope to be a Catholic, you know. Um, what's going on with them? Well, uh, you're right. And I, I, it's not really even the Catholic Church that I'm indicting. One has to use familiar terms. It's really the College of Cardinals. It's really a kind of a, a, a coterie. Remember we said earlier that the these internationals and these Sabbatean sects have hidden behind all of the different... Uh, masks of Christianity and, uh, you know, Protestantism and Judaism and even Islam. Well, they all, how can we leave out the Vatican? The Vatican right. is, the Vatican is not to be, the Vaticanism is a hive of secret societies, most of which people do not know about. A lot of it funded from Switzerland and from Belgium, you know, for the black nobility and particularly the Templars. Because when the Templars were accused of Satanism, right, and they, and they were, they were, they were involved in some very dark stuff from the East. Uh, well, then that they didn't go away. It was all patched up later on because they finally got their man on the throne of the papacy, right? And have there's been a, uh, internal rivalries ever since. And so the ten, the night what we know is the Knights Templars are no longer a Western organization. This is an atavistic, you know, uh, quasi Masonic group that is, is is basically the prime mover. So uh, people who go to my, you know my work on this will soon soon see. That you know, it's not. I'm not indicting anybody who's a, you know a believer in Jesus or anything like that, or you know, or the Bible or whatever. But again, I am pointing to to what the Bible itself says about the false ones, right? About those speaking in my name, those hypocrites who do not let you go through the door, and they themselves cannot go through themselves, right? Right. The well, now you say that the bone. dead man's bones. That's the nice Templar symbol right there, the skull and bone. So. Uh, and then you have the Skull and Bones, which is a, a quasi-Templar order coming in America. And the Templars have loads of groups, ostensibly Catholic on the surface, like Opus Dei and the Knights of St. Patrick and Knights of Columbus. And I'm worried about all of these groups. And again, the Shriners, you know, who work with the, the Islamic, the radical Islam, there's some dark, dark stuff there. But yeah, then to make it easy for people, I wrote a, a, you know, an article that's on my site called The Red Papacy, which is about another uh, term that they went through, the same group. But in modern ages, they came up with this idea that since Jesus in the Bible does go around and heal the sick and is a man of the people, they started to re-script themselves as opposed to being, you know, the, like the Catholicism you're talking about. Mm-hmm. They started to say, hey, we need to sort of communize ourselves. And there's a big, big movement there. And so the right wing movement. The liberation theology, right? Yes. And they were purged. Mm-hmm. The right wing were kind of purged. You know, uh, I talk about the last pope who tried to hold it together, you know, uh, Pius XII. And he, he kind of failed in a way. And right. the papacy turned left and through John Paul II. And then 
well, of course, this happened at many stages we can't go into, but the most important stage, I think, for your listeners is simply that the first job through the 80s, leading up to the fall of the Berlin Wall, which is where your work comes in, because you're pointing out all the walls may fall. Communism doesn't mean it's, it's dead. Right. That's the crux of the matter, right? But just for, again, you know, headline purposes, the left, the, the shadow communists who are in the papacy, had to then go through systematic seducing all the world leaders in order to repaint, you know, respray a picture of the, of the, of Catholicism, which kind of had a bad name. It's religious anyway. So a lot of these new, you know, the new leaders who are atheistic and contemptuous of religion. So a seduction had to happen. And most of them toppled. Almost every one mm -hmm. of the leaders toppled and started to cuss it up and snuggle up to these, uh, the red papists who don't, they're not godly. They're not, they're, they're not really, it's, it's, it's another one of these, you know, cults and sects hiding behind, hiding behind the veil of uh, Catholicism. But that, allow them then you know to be to have a pipeline into the highest echelons of politics and i believe then that the united nations and some of the other orgs are actually their their creation they're leviathans created by this shadowy red papacy so uh, yeah I, I do write on that but believe me and i'll say again as a disclaimer this is by no means to be you know taken by ordinary catholics as some sort of you know uh, criticism of them and their beliefs in fact it's it's a, it's a fifth column a trojan horse that we have to be aware of you know, that's working in the name of Catholicism, right? But has no such ultimate agenda. It's just another globalist mindset that is very, very powerful, but very sinister. And it's also very difficult for any of us to really analyze these things because they're secret. You know, we're talking about secret societies and yeah, they're secret. So we can't know really a lot of it. We can get little hints from people who occasionally have a pang of conscience and then they turn on them and expose it or we, or there are other things we can do, but ultimately we can't know. Now you talked about the uh, Knights Templar getting their man into the papacy. Who was that? Well, it's happened several times, but the first one was back in uh, Boniface. Oh, I don't, I don't, Boniface the second, maybe I'll have to look that okay. up. Uh, All right. yeah. But they've had their men and it, it was quite a wrangle. It wasn't easy. And, and see, all of these groups, Knights Hospitallers, Templars, you know, whoever, they've all had their internecine rivalries, even within, you know, Christianity. And the Templars were banned, you know, by by the the bishops, right? And by Constantine and all of these people, they were, or sorry, not Constantine, but they fell foul of the papacy at a, at a later, you know, King right. Philip of France. Weren't they, they were the bankers of the Vatican, weren't they? They right. were the, and they were the traders. They started with the Crusades, and then they worked their way into various uh, trading in, in the Mediterranean. Oh, yeah. um, multimillionaires, you know, multimillionaires. They were the first lenders of money, the first bankers, exactly, and and also shippers, you know, transporting spices and goods all over the world. But they also had uh, a lot of ways of. Uh, they were not only able to get their men into the papacy, they got their men into the thrones of the world as well. And right. so there was already a corruption from that point on. But then there's that famous story about the Templar treasure, where did it go when the suppression happened and Jacques de Molay and all of that. So I get into all of that, you know, to show you what, again, my theories is, when it comes to the papacy, I rely largely on the works of an insider, Avril Manhattan, who was a, a, one of the most amazing, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. journalists and writers and a person who had contacts, as you quite rightly said, if you have the contacts within who leak information because they have a conscience, then you need somebody like the great Avril Manhattan who then collates that. There's, there's been others who've done this, both in an American context and the European context. So I draw largely on not just him, but Father Robert, uh, uh, Rivera, you know, and Charles uh, Chinakwe, uh, 
uh, other people right. who've written, yeah, great, great authors from within. I mean, Malachi Martin. Oh, yeah. you know, the, Mal that's what I was trying to think of. Yeah, Malachi Martin. Yeah. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, I think that the, the, the good people in the church still kept the upper hand right through the 1950s. I think there was a heyday of the church. It was the height of their, their moral influence, certainly in the United States, and, and, the, and the height of the influence of the priest. But I think starting in the 60s, things started to go downhill. There's a good book about this called A Few Good Men um, that I interviewed the author. I forget the name at this point, but um, he talks about how the, the camel got the nose out of the tent in the American church and how things started to go, go, you know, kind of haywire in, in the hierarchy to the point where things got watered down. You had the pedophile scandal, you had the exposure of a lot of secret stuff going on there. And, uh, you know, it's a, pro it's, it's a huge problem. Um, I, I hope that they write the ship of state in, 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 the, in the Vatican because it still, I think, has at least the infrastructure of, of a great moral force. But one of the problems with the Vatican, and in a way you know this from secret societies, is that it is itself a secret society. It's a hierarchical pyramid structure. And that thus, when you have something get into the works that's rotten and corrupt, it tends to worm its way in and corrupt the whole bunch. So, you know, it, it's both a good structure, but it's also a dangerous structure for any organization to have that. Well, we know it's not fighting back against the Islamization. Right. It, it seems to be reined in and suddenly dead silent, yet it, 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 it can open its mouth by such trivial matters. Uh, there's been popes not who have even said that there's no such thing as a, a, a direct connection to God. All these things are unnecessary. You've got oh bishops who don't even believe in God anymore. The thing has been definitely uh, either infiltrated, that's one theory, or just of its own has uh, got rotten for various reasons. You know, this decadence and the, the influence of communism was really seriously, you know, I call it a form of shadow communism. It, there was yeah. people from within in Italy, you know, who really got... Uh, they were looking for both ways. They were ready to follow the more fascist, but then, as as your work has pointed out, that wouldn't have been a solution either. But they, they, they also chance to turn, you know, hard left, and they did because they saw the younger generation at that time, this hippy dippy Woodstock generation, not just in America but all over the world. They went, if we want to convert and we want to have this group, you know, aligned to us and and believe, it, we need to follow their lead. And so this idiotic move was made that in order to cater to this rabble, basically, this left wing rabble who were, you know, godless and just a Dionysian debauch. The Vatican followed them instead of being a bastion of truth. Said we don't, we're not, we're not out soliciting anybody. They can come to us when they're damn well ready. And when the dark night mm. of the soul comes to you and you're suffering enough, then you'll turn back to the light. We'll be there for you that that day, mate. I was, that was what the original. That's why the priest dress in black. The cure dresses that's in black. Right. Cure because he'll cure you when and if the big questions of life and mortality and existential angst comes to you. They'll be there as one of the voices to say. Let us remind you about your spiritual home. They don't run down after the street a bunch of communists and run after a bunch of lazy ass, you know, hippies who are looking, you know, smoking dope and, and, and just living a life of debauchery. You don't follow them and, and, and change your entire ethos to, to match their mentality. They did. And they, I think starting in the 60s, they let in uh, Maslow and Rogers, the psychologist, go into the seminary and start to teach about, uh, you know, sensitivity training and all this other crap. Anyways, Michael, we're reaching toward the end of the program. So I want to thank you very profusely for joining me. It's been a really interesting conversation. would like to do more of it. I'd like you to take this opportunity to talk about where people can 
read your books, where they can view your podcast, Unslaved, uh, where they can get more information about you, where they can reach you? Oh, just unslaved.com would be best. That's where our podcast is. And I want you to be back in May because here's a book that we're going to do a full thorough. Oh, yeah, I know that book. Excellent. Yeah, by really good. amazing, amazing insider telling you about Islam, not from the outside, but from the inside. So we're going to do a slideshow. And then after that's made, I'm going to send you the copy. And then yeah. I'd love to have you back on as a cr critic to say, you know, what you thought of, of, of this presentation that we're doing on this book. So we'll stay in touch because once I love do to. this, I'll send it to you and get your feedback on it. We'd love to do a whole podcast on Amir Tahiri's incredible insights. Because again, yes. Use this little loophole to say, I'll be sure you guys, you're Christians, you're from the West, you're not inside Islam, it's a bunch of crap, everything you're talking about. Is that so? Oh, no, that book is a classic. I have it as well. I'm glad That's you're doing cool. it. That's great. That's really good news. And let's stay in touch. We could do some cross, uh, you know, broadcasting and, and, and all of that good stuff. So, yeah. again, Michael, I want to thank you for joining me. Michael Tessarian's my guest. And um, have a good afternoon, everybody. Take care.